Get to Old Navy now for February's biggest style steal. 40% off all jeans and tees. Jeans start at just 18 bucks for adults, 12 bucks for kids. With tees from just 7 bucks for adults, 6 bucks for kids. All jeans and tees are on sale, even your favorite rock star jeans. All jeans and all tees are 40% off right now. Don't miss out. Run into Old Navy and OldNavy.com today. Valid 211 to 221 excludes in-store clearance jeans and tees. Active licensed and men's package tees. Welcome to Show Notes with Shannon LeGro. Give her a call at Good evening and welcome again to show notes. I wanted to just send a friendly reminder out to everyone that this and every show is live fire and unedited. Now coming up on Sunday, we will be talking to a woman named Melissa in South Carolina. And it's it's a story much like the Browns, but it's much more aggressive. And um, I know that she has a lot of information to share, some strange things going on besides the Sasquatch. So it'll be a it'll be a great show. So make sure you tune in for that. And some other big news is that at the beginning of March, we are going to go out as a team. The Sasquatch Chronicles team is going out together uh, to an area that has a lot of confirmed activity. Uh, we will not be disclosing where we're going, but once we get back, I'm sure we will fill everyone in on all of the details. So we'll um, we'll, we'll definitely be talking about that uh, more and more as we go along. Now, on SasquatchChronicles.com, Wes posted a video for our members, and he ended up going to the exact location of he and Woody's encounter. You can hear in his voice how hard it is for him to be there and to recount those events. He actually shows you exactly where they were parked, which tree the smaller Sasquatch was in, and right where King Kong, as he calls it, stood in the middle of the road. And he ends up going down to the Lewis River and showing you that location, and that's where he thinks they inadvertently disrupted them getting to. So I wanted to... Uh, you know, thank Wes for doing that. And I know that he, um, it, it just, it took a lot for him to do that. So he got a lot of nice comments and I wanted to say thank you as well. And also another reminder, everybody, that our contact emails, if you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, uh, especially if it's to come on the show and share your encounter or just to talk to us, it's Wes, Will, or Shannon. And then you end each one of those names with at sasquatchchronicles.com. And you can get a hold of us through that. So tonight I have on with me my friends, John and Adam. They, they both help me with the Sasquatch Chronicles Facebook page. 
and John has had encounters, which he will be sharing. And Adam, like me, is fascinated by this subject, but has not seen one. Uh, and actually, Adam has recently been accepted into the North American Wood Ape Conservancy and has his own blog, searchthewoods.com. So I am, I'm very happy to count them amongst friends and to have them on tonight. So how are we doing, guys? Doing well, Shannon. Doing great, Shannon. Thank you so much for having us on here. Absolutely. Thank you very much for, for being on and for, of course, helping out with the page. It's grown in, in leaps and bounds, and I thank you guys for helping out with that. You're welcome. Sure, sure. Now, regional-wise, John, you're in South Carolina currently, and Adam, you're in, in Tennessee. And I'm, I'm assuming I know why John got into, you know, the, the subject, which he will share more about with us. But Adam, I was wondering what got you into the subject of Sasquatch. Um, I think it's, uh, it's kind of the, the normal story of, like, little boy loves monsters and ghosts and anything that can, can't quite be explained, I guess. And uh, so I, I, my dad really instilled that in me. Like he, he loved the, anything paranormal-wise or, or, or anything to do with Sasquatch or anything like that. So he kind of instilled that in me. And my dad is also a, a big outdoorsman as well. And so um, just kind of those two things together got me interested probably around eight or nine years old. And I've been fascinated with it ever since. And I guess uh, lately, over the past four or five years, um, I've really gotten into that, into the subject of Sasquatch and kind of looking into things there. So, And your blog, how often will you be, you know, is that a, a, a new passion of yours then to add to that blog? It is, yeah. So I, I started that literally maybe two or three weeks ago um, and kind of made a, um, made a promise to myself that I wouldn't post anything unless I felt it was, it was worthwhile. Um, so uh, it'll probably be every couple of weeks. Um, but the blog really kind of tries to look at, uh, Sasquatch in a, um, a very kind of black and white manner, um, and just kind of, uh, analyze things for what they are and kind of just my take mm -hmm. on things. So it's obviously just, just my opinion and my opinion alone. Um, but it's just an outlet for me to talk about something that I'm really passionate about and really interested in. Awesome. And, and John, am I right in assuming that you got into Sasquatch because you had, you know, your initial encounter that you had, or was there something prior to that? I think back in the seventies, uh, there was a lot of flack on the television about Bigfoot, and, but there was also an equal amount of stuff about UFOs and Loch Ness monsters and that kind of stuff. And that was in the Leonard Nimoy era, but I really wasn't looking for one. And uh, that's when I saw him on for the first time. So yeah. I, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions at that point, no. Well, I think then that's a great segue to go ahead and let you start off on your your stories then, if you would. Yeah, I um, I live up in North Carolina now. I used to live in South Carolina. And it's easy because we were only like an hour and a half from the border, so it's easy to get it mixed up. But I grew up on a rural farm in York, and if you ever want to look it up, it's actually case number 977 on beef row. And we gave it we gave it to them in 1996, a lot of, a lot of years ago. But during the summer to fall, when I was turning 12 to 13, uh, we used to get the mailbox, um, go by the mailbox and get the uh, get all the stuff out of there 
and then the then the evening paper would come by. So you'd always have to go back up the road mm-hmm. and pick up the evening paper. And where we lived at on our farm, we lived a quarter mile off the main road, and you came down through some fences, and you came down through a couple of fields before you got to the old house. It had been there since the Civil War. And when I got home one evening, it was about 5.30 to 6 o'clock. Now, the sun wasn't quite setting yet, but it was setting enough that it was in the west. We lived to the east of the place where I saw it for the first time. But if you follow the road straight down to the house, then what ends up happening is is that when you leave the front of the house, you can look out and you can see the uh, beginning of the woods up near the start of the road. And you can see just off to the left, there's a blacksmith shop my grandfather has had for you know years. And he's since passed on. But in the day, that was a very dense part of the forest. And if you look at the beef report, they say grapes, but that's not technically what we have here in the South that's wild. It's called muscadines. And so when my mom looked at me and she said, I want you to go back up the road and go grab the paper for your dad, I didn't think much about it. I got I got on my uh, bike, which was a uh, Murray Ray Cat number 5, and I grabbed my dog, and he was a, um, what they call a bear dog, a plyhound, and he, he went with me. And he always seemed to kind of travel on my left-hand side whenever I would bike up the road. On both sides of the road as you leave the house, the house was enclosed by a fence because all around the house were cattle. And directly behind the house to what would have been my uh, southeast was the swamp um, where it's just miles and miles of just kind of depressed areas and also swampy, marshy land. And that, that ties into several creeks, creek systems and, and uh and a lot of lot of, uh, lot of marshy areas that, and uh, ponds that the cows drink out of. So I, le- I left out of the house, and I'm going up the road through the uh, through these two fences and heading up to the to the highway where the uh, mailboxes are. And off in the left, as I'm coming up the road, I, I look and I see uh, I see the sun setting over the ridge, and I didn't think much of it, but I remember my dog, I looked down and I saw my dog and my dog stopped right in the middle of the road. Now this is a gravel road. And um and I'm not trying to be gross or anything like this that, but back in those days we had white gravel, which is what we generally tend to, to pour on the roads to kind of keep the dust down. Because it gets really it gets really dusty in a lot of areas of the south. And so when I looked down I saw that my dog had already started to urinate and I saw that that I just remember looking down and seeing that and thought I thought it was just really odd. So I stopped my bike and I looked at him and he was looking straight forward into the holler off to the left as the road found uh, back around to the right and up the hill. And it didn't, I really didn't see it at first. I didn't really pay attention to what it was. But if you're looking straight down the hollow, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a trail that runs almost due west and heads back down towards the main dairy farm. And on the left side of that trail is, as I mentioned before, my grandfather's blacksmith shop. And on the right side of the trail was a lot of bramble and a lot of places where the, the black uh, blackberries would grow in addition to the muscadines. So it was a heavy, heavy kind of berry area. And when I when I when I kept staring, it, it was kind of like uh, it kind of came into focus. At first, I didn't really see it, and then all of a sudden, I did start to see it. And what helped out was as the sun was just right off into the to the west and, and kind of barely setting, 
what I remember seeing first was the right arm was actually the right arm was actually framed a little bit in the light, and it looked like it had a little bit of a halo around the hair of the arm. And then the rest of it, he was pulling down he or she. I don't know what it was. He was pulling down the muscadine vines to its face, and it was pulling the muscadines with its uh, with its right hand. It was putting it in its mouth, and I remember just kind of coming to an awareness of what I was looking at. And when it finally figured out I was standing there, it turned its head directly in my directly towards me and looked at me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I don't know if I was the first person to say this, but I think I was one of the initial internet reports to use the term mongoloid face because that's literally what it looked like. And and it it just it just kind of I would say it, it didn't have like brown eyes per se but kind of like a dark amber and they filled and I, I don't say I don't I don't think it filled up all the eye sockets but pretty much had some a little bit of white on either side but at that point it it let go of the and I remember how I snapped too because I could, I just couldn't I just couldn't keep from not staring at it and and I at this point I'd already stopped myself cuz I mean we were me and my dog were both just dead in our tracks staring at this thing and we're approximately 15 yards from the tree line and it's approximately another five yards in off of the road and so it finally as it's let let that let that vine snap and and go back up into the tree um it 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 kind of stared and then it made some type of grimace or, or some type of like facial movement and it it came sort of towards us and at that point i pissed in my pants and my dog was already already starting to make its rounds back towards the house. It wasn't going to waste waste any more time than the initial contact that we had already had. And I ended up turning my bike around somehow. I don't know how I did it. It was on autopilot. And I pedaled as fast as I could. Back in those days, the bikes only had one gear. That was it. Mm-hmm. And as much of that gear as I could, I got out of it. And I got back down to the house and... And I hit the ground running pretty much. And when I got back in, as I was coming back up to the house, Mom was asking me, because she was coming out the front porch. We had a classical southern front porch, but not with a lot of pillars or anything like that, just a big front porch. And so she's stepping off the front porch, and she's looking. She was like, she was like, who's that, and, and what's wrong, pretty much was all she said. And I could just remember glancing over my shoulder, long enough to see it step over the fence and back into the tree line. Because they had come full space up towards where me and the dog were at, and then it literally just stepped right over the fence into the, to the, to the, uh, to the field and just back into the tree line. It was literally like a U-turn. And when I went into my, my room, we had these heavy oak um, bookshelves. And I can just remember, I would, there wasn't much going through my mind other than I was just scared to death, and I started pulling books left and right off the shelf. You know, my mom's thinking I've lost my mind, and I'm putting the bookshelves up against the windows, and I'm, I'm putting the books back into the bookshelves. And I really didn't, for, for the most, for as much as I can remember, I think I must have stayed in, in that room for three days and didn't oh, come no. out. And up until the time I got into the Army, I mean, even at 17, and it's four years later, 
if I was going to go see my uncle or go down to the barn, I would either take my dirt bike and ride as fast as possible, or I would I would walk through the open fields so I could see on either side of where I was at if I could see this thing coming. And um, my mom is uh, is uh, mostly all American Indian, um, Cherokee, Eastern Band Cherokee, and so she. She always had little tricks for, like, getting me to do stuff. Um, and my nightmares were just really, really bad for, I would say, about three years. I, I, I couldn't, I really had a hard time sleeping. And it was really difficult. My uncles would get me in the woods uh, at night. But I'd start to um, hyperventilate during hunts and stuff like that. And they eventually just had to start taking me back home more often than they wanted to. And mm-hmm. so my mom decided that, there was an old trick that they had where they would put like a, a knife under your head at night and they tell you to basically if you start to see one of these things in, in your dream that you pull the knife out and and kill it. And that was, there. you know, it's not necessarily a PC or new age solution to how you do it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's exactly what happened. And so eventually that was how I got my uh, Bigfoot nightmares to stop. And a lot of people, when they first see them, they're not prepared to see them from what I read. They, it's just like what I went through. It's like a form of a post-traumatic Sasquatch disorder. Um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. everybody seems to go through that. But yeah, that, that was the that was the very first time I saw it. I didn't, I didn't see another one until uh, I was in my twenties. So, but that was uh, that's what initially got me started. I became very interested in the subject after that. Even though you're scared to death, for some reason it's, there's a fascination to it. Yeah, and I don't mean to laugh at the. The PTSD no, no, acronym, because I I just I already know you and we've you know we've texted and talked about that before. Your PTSD acronym, it, it's yeah. not the same thing as in in the military. So, right. um, yeah. So that was already a, a tough first encounter. It's a really striking to hear you went in your room and you moved your bookshelves, you know, up against the windows. That's very striking to hear. Yeah. Yeah, to this day, I, I even use, I still use heavy velvet curtains in the house where I'm staying, um, and that, that's just, just out of habit, so yeah, it, it's and, just something you don't want to see. What's up? Yeah, if I can ask a question, just curious, how close were you? I may have I may have totally missed that, but it, it sounds like you got uh, some really oh. good detail. It was fairly close, I guess, right? Yeah, the, the biggest... The biggest drawback to the detail was if you're if you're standing on the road, the road heads up until it forks off to the right. The road heads literally due west, and and I would have seen more of this thing if it hadn't been for the fact that the sun was almost setting behind it. Because mm-hmm. um, it was like I said, around six o'clock, and I was probably about 15 yards from the tree line when I stopped, and it was at least five yards in, so mm-hmm. you know, 30 feet maybe. That's still really close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's closer than any, but I, yeah, it's not, I don't want to do it again, I'll tell you that much. It's yeah, on the no sure. list. <laughs> Just like we always tell Shannon, no, you don't want to see one. <laughs> yeah, and I'm stubborn. I'm like, yes, I do. Um, you know, and, and, and piggybacking off Adam's question, how tall would you guess that it was? I don't, it wasn't like what Wes and, and Will see out there. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I think it would have had to been about a little bit taller than a basketball player because there was a lot of guys. My mom also taught basketball, 
so I, I, could, I was a fairly good judge of height. And I'd say that it'd have to be about maybe about half an inch, not half an inch, a half a foot to a foot taller than a, than a standard high school basketball player. So maybe seven, at most eight feet, but seven as best and, as I can remember. And you said your family actually got you out hunting again. How soon after this did, did you go out hunting? They're Southerners as soon as they possibly could torture them. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, knows, Adam knows this. This is oh, how yeah. Southern people work. They will throw you right back on top of the horse. If you flip the tractor, they'll put you right back on the tractor. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, yeah. Brush your stuff off and get back on. Yeah, within two weeks, they had me out coon hunting at night. They're like, like, PTSD my ass. You're going out hunting, right? (laughs) Well, I I found out later that there was a reason that they did that. Um, When I was 21 years old, um, I had just got back from... from, from college, and I was also about ready to go off to do some army stuff for that. I went to military college, um, mm-hmm. and I just got just got back from college, and I was about ready to get ready to go back out for for uh, for drill. And so I'm I'm at the house, and I go up to go see my uncle before I head off, and he's got four other farmers around him. Uh, now, mind you, my father picked on me for years and said he didn't believe in, in this thing. But my dad also jumped into Mount St. Helens many, many years ago. Back when, when Mount St. Helens happened, they pulled all state uh, fire and forest rangers and everybody from anywhere across the United States. And it was only until it was only right before, probably about a couple years before he died, that he told me that he believed my story. But he never told me why. And my uncle was the one that kind of filled me in that something had had, had been happening down there for for a while, um, but he uh, he would uh, he would meet up with some of the guys. They would go down to the stockyard, and then they would either either they would meet before they went down to the stockyard, or they'd meet after they they got back from the stockyard. But there were four farmers that were up there leaning on the back of his truck, and they were just chatting and carrying on. And of course. And Adam knows this, in Southern society, once you have a great traumatic event happen, that's part of your nickname at that point. You're the Bigfoot boy or Raccoon boy or something. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna call you a name. And so I'm, 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 I'm coming out of the house to go talk to him, and he's with the guys that, that my, my uncle's house, because I visited my aunt here. And I'm coming out to talk to him, and, and, and he's sitting there talking to him, and he says, he said to them, here comes John. And one of the guys kind of laughed and he said, he said, uh, he said, well, I think Bigfoot Boy can hear this. And I, I got really, it piqued my interest because it was my uncle that was talking, not, not somebody else. And, and he, he had always played this off. But we, we've been in the South for at least 400 years. We had an older family that was with us, that worked with us. For a long time, they've been with our family for at least two to three hundred years. And the guy that was in that family was a guy by the name of Fred, and he was the most honest and dependable person I'd ever known. And uh, apparently, him and my uncle were out looking at cattle, and they they had calves that had gone missing. And at first, they thought it was based upon the fact that we had wild dogs. And at that time, we were just starting to get coyotes in, but not a lot of them but we just started to. So it was kind of like the mythical coyote might be out there. And the story, as I understand it, was they pulled the truck through the fence off the road, and then they get out of the, uh, they get out of the truck, 
and they walk down to the back end of the fence line where the forest starts, and they hop the fence, and they head down the hill to where the creek's at. They've got a twenty-two rifle with them, and Fred's got the rifle in his arms. My uncle's just opening up fences and getting them through and briars and brambles. So they they start to head down toward the creek because common logic is, is that if a cow gets out, they're going to head the water some way. And so and they're going to also go down, head downhill because cows are heavy. And so they're down there at the creek looking for the cow. And they're looking around and they're looking. And there's a bend in the creek. As best as I can remember the story, this isn't my story, so I'm telling somebody else's story. But there's a bend in the creek, and where where we have creeks around there in South Carolina, they have red clay. So deep back in, in this red clay, um, well, I should say before this, there were some signs that they saw. There were cattle bones and things like that. But also, when you kill cattle near a creek or you eat cattle near a creek, if, like if you're a dog or something like that, then the there's a there's a sickly yellow foam that grows up on top of the water, and it, and it kind of catches itself as it, as the creek flows down. So you can tell where a lot of stuff is either been chewing on something because of, of the fat and the and, and the sinew and all that kind of stuff. It just it just kind of creates this like it's like it's weird form of soapy foam that that develops when you have a large any type of large body of of a cow that either decays or is killed or is eaten near a creek. That's just the way it looks. And so they saw that and they ran the corner and there inside of this this uh depression within the hill there's something and, and this is the first time I ever heard this. I didn't it, this wasn't like when I was twenty one there wasn't a lot of this swaying back and forth garbage that, that everybody always talked about. Mm-hmm. Um but in the inside of the in the inside of this uh, red clay embankment, something had had dug it dug in enough that it could it could literally hop in and hide there. And you know, on second thought, thinking about it, it's perfect because the wood. The name of the road that they were off of is called Woods Road, but the the Woods Road would go off perpendicular to the main road. And so, thinking about it, that would have been a good area for whatever it was to stick its head into or hide out in because nothing would have seen it in that particular bend. But if they came around the corner, and there's a funny part of the story, they start seeing this thing swaying back and forth. And he told me that it smelled bad, but they said it smelled bad just because of all the decay and stuff that was around there and, and things that had been that, 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 it, that it drugged down in that area. And uh, Will also... He never shared the story with me, but Will mentioned that there were a lot of reports from South Carolina where, where these things were killing cows. But you'd have to ask Will more about who he heard from. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking I'm looking in the side of this creek. I'm not, not he's looking. I'm sorry. My uncle's looking in the side of this creek thing, and he's sitting there trying to figure out what this thing is, and it starts yelling at him. And then Fred, who was right beside of him, my uncle turns and asks him, said, Fred, hand me my gun. And Fred's, Fred wasn't even there. And, and my uncle said, Fred, and he turned around and looked over his right shoulder again. And Fred was literally running out of the out of the, out of the woods. <laughs> he said, Mr. Johnson, I'd like to stop, but my legs uh. won't let me. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and, 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 uh, 
and they asked uh, all the farmers just kind of stopped me so said well you know i won't mention my uncle's name he's still alive and he's, and yeah. he said uh he said uh what'd you do and he said i got out of there too i wasn't gonna stay <laughs> and i remember he never looked me directly in the eye just kind of like side glanced at me it's just to let me know that even though they picked on me at least for those five to four years that I'd seen that thing that there was more to what was going on than than uh what they were they were alluding to. Um, <laughs> right. So so I always found like I said, when I told that story to Will, he mentioned I mean over email, he mentioned that, that there were cases in South Carolina where that had happened, so I didn't I didn't think they were half crazy or he was pulling my leg that, that might right. actually happen. Right. Jeez. You look back, your friend's just gone. See ya. <laughs> waste any time uh, yeah i guess you can't blame him in a way huh no he's, he's, what was funny was he was the main one with the gun but <laughs> all the farmers just carry 22s so i'm not exactly sure right. that would have even put a dent in it so now john i know this next one is tougher for you to tell but it's your 2010 encounter yeah the the uh we we had one in 98 but i i won't I won't mention that because that's that actually happened with uh, some other people, and, and I, I, I want to put that one down on paper um, because I, it, when you start to see these things, and you, when you start to become somebody that's seen them more than once in your lifetime, you begin to question a lot of things about your sanity. So the one situation in '98, I was actually with uh, to a grand total of seven people, so I, six including me, and I managed to run into somebody here in town that I live, live near and I asked him many uh, many moons ago at a, at a music festival if we had seen this thing like I had remembered he had gone to prison uh, for what people go to prison for up here in the mountains um, alternative horticultural mm-hmm. and so, <laughs> and so he, 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 told, he told me he said, he said yeah he said we saw that he said but nobody wants to talk about it. So I'll skip over 98 one. Yeah, that's that's completely up to you. Whatever you, yeah, whatever you want yeah, to share. Two, yeah, I understand the permission side of that one. So, yeah, the 2010 situation is a little bit different. Um, I uh, took care of a, a guy whose uh, whose family had started a famous race out in Hawaii. I won't go into it, but it's, it's a race everybody knows about. And it was his brother. Uh, ended up becoming my mentor and my close friend. Um, and he was married into an Appalachian family up here. And they, even though he wasn't from uh, Western North Carolina in his current life, uh, his family had originally lived here many years ago. So he kind of felt drawn back to the area. But we spent a lot of years camping, and he shared with me some knowledge and things like that about engineering and, and making stuff and he had a tool and die shop so we would get in there and make all kinds of you know funky stuff with grinding wheels and whatnot and welding and what what have you a long long time that's pretty much how life progressed but as things happened uh he got really sick and uh he, he died and part of his uh part of his uh, will was that he wanted to have a traditional appalachian weight but he was also mm-hmm. a buddhist which means he wanted to have not just a traditional Appalachian weight, but there were some additional things he wanted to do with his body. So my mom's family, like I said, they're Eastern Bay and Cherokee. My godmother's a Nida Indian from up in New York State, and my godfather, which you would call him Ann, the uncle, 
is what you would call them in, in, in American Indian uh, culture. Like, this is my auntie or my uncle. And so she's a Nida, and he's uh, Lakota and uh, Cherokee. So he's he's part of the tribe here in a loose way as well. And they told me after handling the body for about four days, like I would literally, I would move the body from one part of the house into the basement and back and forth as required by the wake and the viewing. And his sons, his actual birth sons, they couldn't do this because that was the body of their father and they couldn't handle it. And so when I say couldn't handle, I mean literally like an emotional sense, not a physical sense. But they, uh, we would take, take, take it and I would sit with the body at night, which is what you do. Uh, in, in in a lot of the a lot of the of, of Appalachian and, and uh, mountain uh, society, and um, as you can imagine, sitting with the body in the basement at night is not necessarily mentally uh, strengthening. It, it can right. take a lot out of you. And so after the after the uh, funeral was done with, and and we made the urn boxes for his ashes. Um, my family just basically turned and looked at me and they said, well, you need to go and cleanse in the woods. And so the traditional um, Cherokee way of doing it, from, from, from what I've been told and from what they, they expressed to me, was you spend seven days out in the woods and you're, you're, you fast and then you cleanse and then, and then you come out. Uh, and the... Um, the uh, the way that I ended up doing it was that since I handled the body for that long, I said, "Well, I'll, I'll just I'll just Cherokee do things in sevens." So I I just told everybody, "I'll just I'll just take 49 days out and I'll go and spend it out in the woods in the Appalachians." And that's when my my uh, my uh, I'll call him my godfather, but assume uncle if, if there are other American Indian people listening. But my godfather looked at me and he says, "Now if you do that, he says there's some things you're going to need to do." And um, we sat down and we, we talked about it, and he, he told me, he said, basically, he said, you want to move camp every four days so you don't impact the land. He said, you want to go to an area where you're not going to be able to see people because part of the cleansing tradition is, is that you, you, you avoid all contact with all people for the, the time period that you're cleansing. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to do it for seven days straight, and after that I was just going to you know, spend the rest of my time in the woods just to be sure, you know, that I was, you know, ready to head back in and deal with society because it took a lot out of me, not just his death, but sitting with the body. And we picked, um, the area that we picked was Snowbird, which a lot of people don't know much about Cherokee culture or society. There's, there's, you know, what you, you know about in the film, and then there's, like, Western North Carolina reality, and Western North Carolina reality is, is that almost all Cherokee people grew up on the Koala Boundary or Bryson City, at least in the Eastern Band side. And then there's like the Old Katua Mound, which is this field that has a big pump in it that is the old sacred site for the old sacred fires. And then past that, up into the hills in Robbinsville is Snowbird, which is where almost, how do I say it, that's where the oldest traditional community is. And I don't know how to explain it any other way than that. That's where the hardcore Cherokee live. I mean, other than Oklahoma and, and, and the Eastern Band Cherokee, and I think a couple people down in Mexico, but mm-hmm. the really old school traditionalists live in, out in Snowbird. And so we picked Snowbird. And I said, well, I'm going to go stay up on Snowbird Creek. And um, 
and we looked at the map, and we picked a place, me and my uncle did, and we sit there, and he says, okay, well, you're going to go here, and once you go here, then what you're going to need to do is just keep moving around in this area for four days. And if you look at the place on the map, it doesn't look like it's that ridiculous hard, but as Adam can tell you, and when you're in the Appalachians, what looks like it's five feet ends up turning into being a cliff, you know? <laughs> and everything becomes a lot more uh, hard to, to transverse than, than what you realize. But before I headed back out, my uh, uncle knew about what I'd seen when I was a kid growing up, and he also knew about what I'd ran into in 98. And he pulled me aside. He said, "He said I, I want to talk to you about this because this, this, this concerns me. He said, you have a propensity to see these. I don't think propensity was a word he used, but I'm using it. But he said, you have a propensity <laughs> to see these things. And he said, you're going to be by yourself, and that's, that's when you really don't want to see them. And uh, they don't have the mythical kind of, as we always say in our community, flute player attitude towards Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Their their way of looking at it is is that, yet, yeah, they treat it like a different person, but it's been well hashed over that, that they know that they can get you too. And so what he ended up telling me was something I'd never heard before. And I'd mentioned this to... Uh, David Pilates investigators when they talked to me about this. The um, the thing that, that he told me was is that they liked two things. And he said they liked to suck on true copper coins, which is like a pre nineteen eighty two copper penny. And he didn't he said I asked him why he said he said he just didn't explain it. You know, he he just said that they would they would put the penny in their mouth and they would suck on it. And he said that the other thing that they liked was that they liked uh hard candy and he told me he said now you don't put out a lot he said what you do is you put out just a couple pennies and a couple of uh and a couple of jolly ranchers or something like that and 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 if you leave those out at night he said they'll leave you alone and i wasn't really thinking about them as much as i was thinking about the death of the guy just buried and 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 whatnot but that was like a side note and i remember going going through and picking out a bunch of pre-1982 pennies and um, and then carrying that out in the woods. I must have spent, I got out there and uh, we crossed over into the creek system and I got onto the side of the mountain where nobody was at, past where all the, the trout fishermen go. And my friend goes across the creek with me and we have to stretch a, a line and we just go over. And I end up not at the area I thought I was. And the area that I went to, I think I'm going to leave off of this interview. I'll tell you guys later if you guys want to know. But mm-hmm. when, when I went into this area, I never I never considered that I would even see them. It wasn't something that I hadn't, it had been so long since uh, that had happened that I, you know, it just, it just wasn't in my mind because there was a whole list of other things I was going to have to do throughout the day. And like they... I had to learn Cherokee as an alphabet, and there's 80-something characters in the alphabet, and there's five different ways of saying so many different vowels and, and whatnot. And so the uh, – and then my, my aunt or my godmother had, like, this entire thing of herbs that I was supposed to study while I was out there. So there there was a lot of stuff to keep me occupied that I wasn't going to be necessarily worried about it. So I had my dog with me. I thought that was kind of safe. You know, a dog's not a person, so they don't necessarily count. And um, and I just had myself, and I had uh, two three fifty seven revolvers, and uh, and that was right after the it was two thousand and ten. So that was right after the whole thing where where you could start carrying into the national forest. And um, 
plus it was on Indian land anyway. We carry, we don't really care. And then, so I'm up, I'm up, uh, I'm up in this area and I'm camping. So I finished up my first seven days. And then right after the first seven days happened, this was, uh, in May of 2010. I don't know if you guys remember when Nashville, Tennessee flooded the entire downtown area. Do you remember that, Adam? Yeah, I do, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Adam remembers this. The entire downtown had flooded. That was the time period that I had gone into the woods. So it rained for 38 days straight of the 49 that I was out there. Hmm. And I had to use that two, in the Appalachians, we used two, the, the two rainfly system. The one over your tent, and then one over your tent again. <laughs> Just make sure you're not going to get three. And then maybe three, because one under your under your tent. Uh, but um, the so it was just kind of like after that seven days. I remember my dog started barking at night, and when you're in the middle of a, a pitch hollow, on either side, um, if the sun's blocked or the moon's blocked, it's pitch black. You're not going to be able to see out of that. I mean, it, it gets so dark back there that, that, I mean, you can't see your hand in front of you after the sun goes down. And um, so I'm I'm listening to my dog bark and bark and bark, and um, I got to check off. Just making sure I won't run out of power. But um, mm-hmm. I um, my my dog started barking, and I got out of the got out of my tent to look around, and there wasn't anything out there. Now I don't I know a lot of people see some weird stuff. Uh, that, that they can't explain, but I should have looked at this as a, as a possible sign of something was going on, but I really wasn't thinking about it. But I, I saw a fox fire for the first time. And, I, and, and for an Appalachian person, seeing fox fires, like, that's like, that's like, that's, that's like the ultimate thing you can see because it's just so tied into the folklore. And I look out there and I see it just floating through the mountain laurel. And I, I, I was just, I was just standing because I'd never experienced it, and I knew what it was, but I I was just taken back by the fact that, that it actually existed. And um, so I thought for a little bit that that's, that was the main thing that the dog was barking at. She got excited and thought something really serious was out there. And so I went back and I went to sleep. Uh, the next night, uh, the dog started barking again, and I got up, and it was pitch black again, and... As soon as I stepped out of the tent, I started to hear something just crash right off through the bottom of the of the uh, of the uh, uh, creek tributary system where I, where everything met up. I was I was camping it, like I said, down at the bottom, and all of a sudden the uh, this this big thing just crashed. And I thought, man, that's a black bear, and you know, and I didn't really worry about it. And I went back and went right back to sleep. And the next night I got up, I moved my camp out of the bottoms up on top of a ridge because it was after the four days. And when I was on top of the ridge and I pitched camp again, I was there for that first night and it rained yet again. And, um, Hey John, I, I hate to, I hate to interrupt you. What, what was Foxfire that you were, you were bringing up? What, what exactly did you mean by that? What is that? It's a, um, it's a luminescent or it's, it's either, it's either a luminescent ball, according to some people. Mm-hmm. What I saw was many of them, uh, and it literally looked like, um, if you can so imagine, like fireflies. Of, not quite. It looks. It, they don't blink. Um, it, mm. it and it float on the wind. It's it's a really it's art. It's a, a hard to describe. 
it's like if you were to, if you took insect eggs and uh-huh. you, and you made them glow in the dark and you set them on the wind and they were just lighter than 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 uh, the gravity and the air could push up against them and uh-huh. the gravity couldn't bring them down and if you just scattered them and and they kind of flowed into the wind instead of going straight to the ground that's that's what foxfire kind of looks like it looks like okay. balls of light it's 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 really it's it's beautiful, but it's not so otherworldly that you're going to freak out and fall over. It's it's, right. just, it's a phenomenon, but I'm not exactly sure what causes it. Because brown just mountain, some kind of a away. weather a weather phenomenon or something like that. We don't know. We absolutely don't mm-hmm. know. Um, the conditions where I was at was right for it because we like yeah. to say Brown Mountain is not very I mean, within. Yeah, Brown Mountain Lights. Up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm sorry, John, to interrupt you. Continue. No, no, you're fine. Um, Sure, show, <laughs> but um, the um, that night back up on the like I said, I was camped up on the ridge, and this was uh, two nights after the fox fire stuff. And I got up the second as it was. I got up the uh, night after it rained. After I got up to the ridge, I was t- just tooling around the campfire, and I I was just uh, messing messing with uh, with the uh, the lines on the tent to make sure they're stretched out because that's what you do. It rains and you re-pull out your tarp because that's, you know, the only thing you're really worried about staying, staying dry. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, I'm, I'm sitting there just looking around and there's not much going on except, you know, it's the woods and you're chilling out and, 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 and you're not really thinking about anything. And then I look up through the bramble of Mount Laurel. I don't know if you've ever I know you live in Ohio, so I know you've got the Alleghenies and stuff near you and whatnot, but the mountain laurel kind of just is so thick that you really can't see through it. Adam, Adam can tell you, it's just like, yeah, it gets really knotty in places. You, you can't even pass through this stuff most of the time. I'm looking up on the ridge, and I'm, I'm looking through the laurel, and all of a sudden I stop because I'm looking at something that looks like uh, just, it looks like, Black. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to describe it because it looked like black. Uh, it's just like just pitch black hair. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well that's a black bear. And then I noticed that the hair wasn't quite. I mean, when you see black bear, I hike the Appalachian Trail, so I'm, I'm fairly. You get to know black bear pretty quick, and and so I'm sitting here looking at the at this thing. <clears throat> And then it does something that really unnerves me. It this uh, this uh, black mass starts to sway back and forth, just enough, mm-hmm. but enough to let me know I'm not looking at a bear, because a bear would have, you know, by the time I'm sitting there yelling and snapping and, and messing around, black bear generally t- won't won't stay around. My first thought was, okay, well it's spring, maybe he's hungry, maybe I look tasty, you know. I, I was trying to rationalize everything that 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 they had they had been going on. Now, mind you, each night before I would go to bed, I was doing this ritual of setting out the Jolly Ranchers and 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 and, and the uh, Jolly Ranchers and, and the uh, and in the pennies. Mm-hmm. So that had been going on, but I had been collecting them every night and putting them back in my pocket, and. Um, and helping myself to a couple of Jolly Ranchers while I was at it. <laughs> but, but yeah, so so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it until that moment. And then I looked, I looked back, and, I, and it was still there. 
and it, and, and it stopped swaying. It was just staying right there in the tree line. And I noticed my dog, who normally barks at everything under the sun, if she can see it, is not barking anymore. Um, and um, I just I just kind of was like, something's not right. And, and, and I started to get that feeling you get whenever you know that, that they're there. And I stopped and put everything I could into my bag. And I started to move my camp immediately, uh, pulling tarps back, you know, cutting lines on trees. You know, I moved my dog first. I got her way back and way back at where I was going to camp the next night. And I was going to go ahead and get out of here two days early. And I was like, because I can't leave. I'm already on this. I've already committed to 49 days. And walking out is out, I'm going to tell you, if you, if you back out of the southern traditional anything, everybody's going to make fun of you into the day you die and call you a coward. So there's no way you're going home. You're going to stay out there. You're going to stay. And and so I, I said, okay, well, I'll go. I'll get the hell out of here, and I'll go somewhere else. Because I'm not going anywhere anyway. I'm eight miles from the main road, and even past that point, that main road to gravel road, it's another additional five miles into the nearest town. So I'm I'm already way back there. I'm at the place where they call Eric, not called Eric Rudolph, but where Eric Rudolph ran off to from the FBI for the first time. That's how remote it was. And so I go way back as far as I can, drop the dog off, I come back, I grab as much more of my stuff as I can. It's not there now, but I'm not trusting that. You know, I've got both. I, I'm, 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 I'm packing dual pistolas at this point where I've, where I've got my rig set up so that I've got both of them on me instead of just one. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they call it, you know, code red or whatever it is. But the... Uh, I bring all that back up to the, this place in, the, in where where me and my dog are going to stay, and I started. I should have took this as a sign, other than the fact that I just saw something in 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 the trees going back uh, in fourth in the laurel, and um, and I thought, okay, well, whatever this thing is, if it's come up on me these last few nights over this past course of this week, it's, there's a chance it could come back again, and. Um, so I got camp set up in this other place. The other place was maybe possibly a little bit worse than where I was before, but I wasn't really tactically thinking about it at the time. It just it was back in a ravine. It was rock on both sides, and I could at least put my tent near the creek and keep an eye on, on what was going on around me instead of the other place where I was, you know, knee-deep in laurel. And um, so I set up camp, and... I go and I uh, cut a holly. A holly back. A holly kind of grows straight in certain areas. It doesn't always grow crooked. And I cut me a holly stick. And I also uh, put my Fisker fishing, uh, my Fisker fishing trident on the end of it, and uh, strap that down because it's so thick in there in certain areas that you can't sometimes get your shots off real quick. So I'm thinking if it is a bear, then I can hold it back a little hair if I need to. And um, at this point, I'm in a panic mode, so I'm not really thinking properly anyway. But I managed to get the tent set up, and I get the dog situated, and nightfall comes. And I remember staying out there, waiting for whatever it was that I saw to show back up. And I got my dog already. I put my dog in the tent. I normally don't put the dogs in the tent, but I did that night. I, I put her in there, and I, I just said, you know, stay. And I got out there, and I, I had I had one pistol on my backside at this point 
I got my spear in my one hand, and I got my 357 in my other hand. And uh, I custom load uh, rounds. So I, I had 180 grain 357 rounds that were with me, and and uh, that's it's a pretty that's a pretty nice size 357 round. So even then, I didn't feel like it was enough. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anything would have been enough. But as the night kind of started to fall, you got to remember, as I said, it's rained in the Appalachians the entire time. So the loam and the forest litter cover, you can't hear anything. So if somebody could walk right up on you, and you wouldn't even know it unless they unless they really snapped a branch or something. And and so I'm already aware that I can't hear whatever's coming, so I'm nervous and I'm scared. And at that point, all you could do is just wait and sweat and wait and sweat. And then, of course, as the sun goes down, you can't sweat anymore and you start to get cold. And at that at, at that time, I decided, okay, well, this is stupid. I'm, I'm sitting here waiting to get eaten or die. So I'm just going to go go stay in, my, stay in my tent. And I open up my tent and I, I get in there. And uh, before I was about ready to go to bed, I remembered, oh, well, I need to put out the pennies and the Jolly Ranchers. And, of course, that was not something I really wanted to do, but I got back out. And there was a place where a tree had fallen, and it had fallen flat and perpendicular as it was, horizontal to the ground. And um, in the center of it was where it started to erode at least a year or so ago. And there was a little bit of a hollow in the log. So I put my uh, my pennies and my Jolly Ranchers in the center of that little hollow. And granted, it's not going anywhere. This was literally like a, a flat surface and in, in, in sticking it. Even if the a hurricane had come up, they probably wouldn't come out of there. And so I did that, and I go and I lay, I go and I lay in my in my tent, and all around me there was a rain for a while, and you could hear it just on softly hitting the hitting the tarp up above. And I'm laying there with my head facing down towards the downhill on the creek because that was just the way it, the, the situation was and my feet are facing towards up towards the mountains way back, further back into the ravine the the, uh, the dog I noticed had rustled around but then got really really quiet and uh, and I couldn't hear anything right at first and then as I was laying there I heard almost almost within 20 to 25 feet away, maybe a little further, but still close enough that startled me. I heard uh, these two rocks start clacking together. And about that time, I about pissed my pants yet again. Because at that, at that point, everything from childhood, everything that I've already experienced comes back in one moment where you're just kind of like bracing to get killed. You're, 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 you're sitting there thinking, well, that thing comes through this tent then I, I'm 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 gonna go out shooting both pistols as fast as I can and put as much damage on that guy as possible before I go out, mm-hmm. you know, and and hopefully give my dog enough time to get out of there. And that that's literally the state of mind I was at. I'd already wrote goodbyes, you know, in in, in a page of my journal. I was I was ready, um, and uh, and to make sure people didn't think I'd lost my mind, I even wrote in my journal that it's a bear that's coming to get me, you know. So that way my mom wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? It would just right. Be a crazy guy. So, and yeah. so it, it, that's what rationally what you would do and kind of protect your family. And so I'm, I'm sitting there just hearing it clacking rocks directly behind my head. And then all of a sudden up the ridge, 
as it's quacking, I hear, and this isn't the echo because it was a different pentameter, I hear a different set of quacks up off, off almost to a 45-degree angle up on the ridge. Oh, and it's clacking, it's clacking there, too. And I'm like, oh, shh, you know, there's two of them, you know? Well, to add insult to injury, the, the, story, the story wasn't over for, for the number of, of them that were around. I, I, I was sitting there going, like, okay, well, I can aim one pistol this way. I can aim the other one back over my head. If they start approaching the team, I can just shoot two rounds off at the same time. And maybe that'll scare them off. I, and, and then at the, at the same, in the same breath, I heard another one on the trail at a, at the other 45 degree angle from, from, from my head start this clack rocks up on the ridge on the other side of the, of the ravine. And then I started to realize what had happened. I was, I was literally pinned. There was no way I could, if I had crossed the creek and I had even attempted to go up that face, to get out of there that night, then the one that was on top of that ridge that was there would have got me. If I had gone and ran further back into the mountains like I did before when I first saw it, um, then the one up on top of the ridge on that side on the trail would have got me. And if I tried to get out by the creek and down by the trail, the one that was directly behind my head would have got me. And so I did something that, that you normally don't do. Um, I caught both pistols. And I, I, I literally put them across my chest. And, I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm the type of person that leaves all the rounds in the chamber. I don't leave one out like some people do or two out like other people do for quote-unquote tactical reasons. I actually keep all the, all the rounds in the chamber. And so I've got, I've got both of my pistols cocked and across my chest, and, and I'm ready for them to either come in and get me or go out and get me. And... <clears throat> So what ends up happening is, is that at, at some point they quit clacking the rocks because that was just really unnerving. That was the most unnerving part of the whole thing. And once they stopped clacking the rocks, I said, well, okay, well, this is it. They're going to get me. And then I didn't hear anything. And then finally I just kept listening listening. And then once the adrenaline wore off and the panic left, <clears throat> I just collapsed. And I went right to sleep. And uh, when I woke up the next morning, um, my pistols were by my head uh, with my hands, and I, by the grace of God, didn't pull the trigger or anything like that. And and then I, I woke myself up, and I got I got out of the tent, got my dog out of the tent, and I looked around, and there wasn't anything to be seen. And I just remember thinking, like, damn, I'm alive. You know, whatever it was didn't eat me. And then that's when I thought about it. You know, I thought for a second, well, you know, why didn't they get me? And I started to pack the tent up and get out of there because I'm not going to stay. Even though I scheduled to stay another three days in that spot, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to get further back up the side of the ridge, closer towards the main trail. And I wasn't going to get, I wasn't going to leave the woods yet because I was going to finish the mission because that's, that's what you do. That's what men did. And so I'm sitting there going like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to leave, but I'm going to get close enough to the trail. If something happens, I can go out on that trail and find somebody. Just, just something really crappy happens. And so my plan is to get out of this deep part of the ravine and, and do that. And the only, I'm not going back down the trail, which I ran into the first one. I'm not going up the trail when I, ran into, when I, when I would have ran into the other one that was clacking rocks on that side of the trail. You know, so I'm sitting there thinking, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up this sheer face 
of, of, of this uh, rock and mud and, 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 uh, and mountain laurel and get up on top of that ridge and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna walk down and I'm gonna get the hell out of here. And it's exactly what I'm gonna do. And I pull out my um my carabiners and I pull out my rope and and uh I start to to uh get ready to, to get out of there. And then on second thought I remember the think I remember I said, Well I wonder what happened, you know, with the jolly ranchers and in, in the cause it, that was kind of the thing. I always put them in my pocket before I'd leave. And I went over there and I looked at the Jolly Ranchers and, and, and the Copper Pennies. All, uh, all the Copper Pennies and all the Jolly Ranchers were gone. There wasn't even a wrapper <laughs> that had been left. There was nothing. There was nothing at all that had been that had been left at that in that little hole. And I, I was sitting there going, "Cause it takes hands and uh, to do all that, you know, from everything that they were doing to to getting that stuff out to to the chipmunk or anything like that. They're gonna you know, you're going to be able to tell that they were around. And and, and they're not going to take all, all the pennies either, because uh, last time I checked, chipmunks aren't into pennies. And <laughs> I'm, like, looking I'm looking at, at that, and I'm going, like, well, I'll be darned. I guess it it was it was them. And uh, and, I, and at, that, at that point, my resolve was quickened that I wasn't going to stay there. And um, I remember I couldn't find my, uh, I don't know if Adam does any mountain, uh, mountain climbing or anything like that, but I remember I couldn't find my gloves, and and I was uh, I had created a hitch, and I was uh, pulling up my uh, gear. I had two backpacks with me and one one uh, one uh, army uh, duffel bag full of dog food, um, and I, I began to pull everything up from the from the base of the creek up to the top of this uh, this ridge up the cliff, and um, I remember getting I remember just being in such an adrenaline rush to get out of there, I didn't realize that I had forgotten to put my gloves on and that I had eaten all the all the skin off of the inside of both of my palms in, in, in my uh, on the rope. That's how that's how that's how focused and scared I was about just getting out of there. And um, because my hands started to bleed and I finally that night we actually spent because I got so worn out pulling all that stuff out of there and up onto the side of this mountain, I actually spent the first night uh, on that cliff face, um, just as we got out of the, that that bottom, and I figured I was probably a little bit safer up there because I could, I, you you would have been very difficult to get to me. And then um, the next day, I, I of course got out of there, and, and the trip continued, and and it just it just uh, as all good trips, you know, it it, it kind of crescendoed. That was the worst part of it, you yeah. know. And then after I got out of there, it was uh, it, it just you know, ended as as uh, as good trip should, but uh, it it was uh before I, that was well before I believe I'd ever heard about the missing four one one things and whatnot, and that didn't help me out after I heard about it either. No, I bet because <laughs> no, because I mean it was obvious that they could have very easily got me that night, you know, not without a fight though, you know, but at the same time there were three of them. Yeah, you were ready that. Uh tombstone style for him so I, I don't blame you a bit that's <laughs> terrifying adam did you have any questions for john on that encounter yeah not i guess not so much a question but just a just a statement i think it's um i think it's a, a testament to that to, to john's encounter the amount of detail that he can remember mm-hmm. i think that that is i think that is some of the most incredible uh pieces of any encounter when people remember so vividly like i mean 
I don't know about you, Shannon, but I was, I'm like sitting here staring at a wall and I, and I kind of like Good came back. Picture all of it, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, uh, it's, it's so easy with, with someone like John who, who, who can put that picture together and remembers every detail so clearly. Um, yeah. you know, just that realizing that you, it's, it's not one thing that's off kind of in the, in the woods clacking rocks, but it's another and then another and kind of that realization that, you know, if, they wanted to do something, then there's not too much, no matter how, uh, you know, how much ammo you're packing there, no matter what kind of firepower you have, there's probably not going to be a whole lot you can do other than, than put up the best fight you can. And I, I think that's, I think that's crazy that the amount of detail there was just unbelievable. That was, that was really awesome and terrifying, but, but awesome at the same time. Yeah. John, I was wondering about the rock clacks. Was it in twos or threes? Was there a pattern to it? There was a, pattern um because when it first started out it sounded like it was in sets of threes interdispersed with twos it was almost it was almost like they 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 it was kind of like this i'm here other dude i'm here other dude i'm here and then like there was some type of like In between all of that, there was some type of like, it could have been almost like I'm a ham radio operator. So it kind of sounded like almost like a weird version of, of Morse code. But the mm-hmm. way that they ended it was the scariest part was they all started clacking at the same time. And that, oh, <clears throat> right before man. they stopped. And that, that was, that was the, that was a, you know, like I said, when I when I thought they were going to stop and get that, that's what let me know that that was most likely what what was going to happen. How but long did I, they, I couldn't uh, really determine. Huh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Adam. Oh no, I was just going to say. So, at, at what point did you kind of, you know, maybe accept the idea of what what was there not being a bear or not being something a little more uh, mundane or or usual? Like, I, you know, at what point did you kind of flash back to that childhood uh, kind of experience and say, Hey, this, is this happening again? Or was it just kind of something that after the fact you were like, uh, you know, that, that could potentially have been what it was. Just curious to kind of when no one, thoughts started being, you know, triggered towards that early childhood experience. Knowing that, um, what I'd seen, uh, the afternoon before and realizing that, <clears throat> the fur on the black bear didn't look the same as what this was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but let me put this in context. I saw just enough that there was enough doubt. See what I'm saying? Yeah. There, I saw just enough that there was, I knew something was standing there, but I could still right. <clears throat> fit in my mind that that, that could have been a black bear. I mean, I sure. still had yeah. that little bit of sanity to hold on to. Right. Yeah. And But at the same time, the, the movements of it and it not retreating and it not not leaving me that that's what concerned me more that that's when I started to kind of logically start working out that what I was dealing with was a little bit different now when when I saw what I saw when I was a child I won't go into the 1998 one too much except to say that it was it was it was it was black and silver but mm-hmm. what I saw as a child was amber it was your classical wild blackburn um, yeah, kind sure. of like amber mm-hmm. when, but um, I guess I guess just thinking it was black and, and and it could have been a black bear it helped me kind of get moved to the other camp. Sure. But 
it it was when it was when it started clacking rocks behind my head. <clears throat> yeah, that I realized <laughs> what I was dealing with because you always there's that that famous uh, one of those famous interviews. They always say it, and it's it kind of haunting because it came to me years later when I saw it. It's, it's, I forget which interview it was, and there are other people that out there that know which one it is. The guy says, it takes hands to clack that stuff together. You know? mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was Mike Woolley or some one of those guys, but <clears throat> when 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 I heard it clacking the rocks, that and I, and I was in the deepest, one of the deeper parts of the Appalachians, where if you know where Eric Rudolph went off to, you know. Mm-hmm. That's like, as the FBI can painfully tell you, that's a place you just don't want to be. And... <clears throat> And it's just hard to traverse. And I just remember realizing that there's nobody back here. There's no possible way anybody's back here. And I'm by myself. And for anybody to show up in the middle of an Appalachian rainstorm in the middle of the night in order to um, in order to uh, to uh, scare me with rocks and, and some guys on a, a herring ridge up on the left yeah. side of the and the Herring Ridge on the right, and some guy directly behind me, it's not possible. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure it's possible, but, I mean, to go through the amount of yeah. trouble, it's, it's not, not likely. That's when the realization hit me, Adam. Yeah, sir. Now, John, as far as the, the clacking also, I'm just I'm fascinated by that behavior, and we've heard it many a times. So how long at the at the climax of this encounter were they – how long did the clacking go on all around you before it finally to, stopped? I would have to say it was about anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute. That's a long time. Of them going back and forth. That's a really, yeah. really long no time. No wonder you were so stressed <laughs> out. My goodness. That's yeah, I mean, because it was, that was, I think, I think that was part of the psychological, I think that's part of their psychological, you know, in retrospect, because mm-hmm. I was in the infantry, and I knew I'd been triangulated. And that's what scared me really bad, because a lot of other people, they would have, you know, gracefully gone, oh, they're going to get me. But I already knew at that point, not only were they going to get me, they were going to do it with style. You know? And and <laughs> yeah. and, and, and tactically and, and and brilliantly execute get me. And, and so I think what they do, at least from what I can... I, I really don't know what they do, but I'm just guessing. But at this point, I think that they kind of do that in order to to make sure you know you're not you can't go anywhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's no there's no absolute there's there's no way that you you're going to leave. And and I, I need that pretty painfully myself. But like I said, I, I think I did the best thing. I didn't move. You know, I just stood my ground and and and, and uh, you know was prepared to start shooting. You know, that, you know I, that's what it came to. Yeah. I, I just wonder if there was one more or two more people with you, how different would it have been? Would they have even done that? You know, were they just trying to mess with you or intimidate you because you're by yourself? I, it's the what ifs, you know? Well, there's a, if, you, if we're looking, and I know Will doesn't always put a lot of faith in the caseload from, from the 411 stuff, but. Mm-hmm. You have to look at it from the standpoint of those cases and and and, and see what what I did wrong. First first part of being wrong was I was by myself. The second second part of being wrong was I had a dog with me, which apparently that's not always the best thing. And were you wearing and, bright colors? Right? <laughs> There's yeah, like the checklist. Yeah. No. Uh, by by the grace of God, I do not wear bright colors in the woods. 
And yeah. and the only the only positive benefit to this that I had was before I went into the woods, I remember saying like, well, if I'm going to spend 49 days out there, and this was when I got my pistols. I mean, it was the first mm-hmm. time because I had I, I got into the whole tofu Asheville yoga thing and and it sold off all my guns at one point, um, which was stupid. But mm-hmm. um, so right before I went on this trip, I I ordered I ordered those pistols and and that was uh and uh well I didn't make my why didn't why I didn't like I got the why I wasn't like totally back in reloading at that point, I did make sure to get the most heavy bear round that I could get, which was hundred and eighty grains. They make a two hundred grain three fifty seven round, but that was the round that I took out there was the old school Winchester hollow point hundred and eighty grains. Really hard to find nowadays. Very nice. And and so um that that was kind of like the only saving grace I had was I was armed. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if they could smell that, like gun oil, or they could smell gunpowder. I doubt they could. You know, I, I mean, it was in the middle of the rain, but then again, I don't know how sensitive their noses are. Maybe they heard me quit pulling the pulling the uh, pulling the uh, hammers back. But it was my godfather that basically told me what happened. And his beliefs is or what he believes happened, I should say. But um, when I when I came back to the house, um, I ended up uh, after they pulled me out of the woods. My best friend came and picked me up. He and I spent three days out there, and we talked about it. And I said I saw him again. And he said, "Well, they can get you. You you obviously here." And, and we laughed about it. And um, and uh, we were. Uh, he hadn't got a chance. Of course, he'd been in, staying at my house for the time period because, like, like it's, this was a guy whose father had just died. So mm-hmm. he was staying at my house trying to unwind up in the mountains and get his head back on because he just lost his dad. And so he and I are sitting around the campfire just talking and chatting and stuff like like that. And um, he said, well, you know, your godfather wants you to come back over to the house up at his place. And so I ended up getting back into town, and I dropped all my gear off, and I spent that night at home alone for the first time. Not home alone, but home in my own bed. So, you know, it's, it's an awesome feeling after you've been out in the woods for that long and you get back home and you, eat and you finally sleep on an actual bed. And so I'm, I'm, I get up that next day and I go over to his house and he and I are just talking. And he finally just, he just said, so tell me about your trip and what happened. So I said, well, I moved my campsite every four days, like I said. I did my fast. I did my cleanse, da, 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 da. And then he just said, "What ex- What else happened?" And mm. and and then I told him, and he said, "Well, he said they they uh they uh took the candy and they took the, took the copper instead of taking you." And um, and that's that's they recognize that, and it's a little bit Adam. I'm, I read your blog today. I, I realize there's a lot of rational stuff that goes into the way you process thoughts. I really appreciate that. Sure. And, and, um, but also you kind of have to get into the semi Cherokee Appalachian mystical logic thinking stuff sometimes. And, and it, because if you don't, you don't understand where a lot of people are coming from. And so when he said, when he said that to me, I kind of understood that he was most, more than likely correct that they had taken that as kind of like a substitute sacrifice other than picking my ass, or pardon me, just picking my butt off in the woods and, and doing whatever they want to with the bones, you know. And uh, me being the next 
a missing video on Cam Am or something like that. <laughs> but but yeah. but um but uh he he uh he when he said that it made perfect sense. I mean I knew kinda knew in the back of my head when I saw it that that, that might have been the case, but him saying that really really brought it home to me that that um for some reason these old giants are like copper and I don't know why. And and that's just kind of the way things work. Um, and they like they like candy, obviously because we like candy. But um, they like sweet stuff. I know that much. And and maybe that maybe that's what they did instead. You know, they took that and, and instead of taking me, who knows? I don't. I don't so that don't that's not to yet. the thinking wasn't to keep them away with the copper and the Jolly Ranchers. It was to appease them, basically. That's what he told me. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. He's, yeah, he said they like to suck on the copper and, and they like the yeah. they like the hard candy. Yeah, that that's um it's a terrifying encounter. I'm thinking of the rock clacks and not that it really I mean I guess it could tie in somehow. We don't really know, right? But when Wes and Mimi and I were playing the baby cry out at the Browns and the whoops started. They started it. It was the same thing. It started in twos and then it went to threes. It was very rhythmic. And right. there was just like a, a method behind the madness, if you will. So not that we know anything about what they're thinking or doing, but uh, that's what it made me think of is your your twos into threes. And it stayed like that. I'm just thinking of you in the tent. Do you do you wish at any point that you would have? And I, I'm, I think I know your answer, but. Are you regretting not popping your head out or, you know, getting out of the tent and, and saying, get, get the hell out of here or anything? Well, if you've ever, if you ever use the, the Appalachian Rainfly system, the biggest discouragement is, is that as soon as you come out of the tent, you're not going to uh-huh. be able to stand up anyway because the right. rainfly literally is over the vestibule of even the first part of the tent. And then after mm-hmm. you come out of there, there's another rainfly up above. So I would, I was already at the disadvantage of coming out anyway. Because uh, right. not only would I have not seen them, I would have been already having to stoop down as soon as I came out. So tactically, yeah. I wasn't going to move. Um, because they, they that, I would have been more exposed and they would've, that would have been uh, vulnerable or weak. I, I agree. It was a good move. I'm not I'm not questioning your, <laughs> your judgment at all. I think I would have you know done the same. Except give me the diaper kind of a kind of a deal. So that's I mean plus if you if you poked your head out, they're just gonna cloak away anyway and disappear and not see him. <laughs> right. Exactly. Look for him anyway. So that's yeah, good, they good gone. Good job, they're gone. <laughs> Rainbows and unicorns right through the forest. That's right. I know, it's nothing I know, but yeah. happiness out there in the forest, guys. <laughs> yeah, John John and his flute, I know he is laying on it, you know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I just yeah, I, love the vision of you with your, you know, your massive guns laying there. I'm like, at least you had, you know, the weapons. Like you said, maybe they could, they could smell the bullets. You, you make your own bullets. Maybe, maybe they knew. You know, they're like, well, we're gonna mess with them, but we probably shouldn't go too close. Yeah, they, they, they. Um, you know, back then, I, for those particular ones, I purchased them, but I was, I was getting back into reloading at that time. Yeah. Um, but. But at the same time, I've also heard it said that they can sm- gunpowder residue stays on even factory bullets. Uh, they know from from forensics. Um, mm-hmm. So 
they, they, they could have very easily smelled them that way, or they could have smelled... Uh, um, I was using ATF fluids uh, as well, um, uh-huh. which is something else they could have smelled, because ATF fluid works really well for guns in a, in a pinch. Um, so they could have smelled that, 3-in-1 oil or anything like that, because you really have to keep, keep your guns uh, really well oiled when you're in the mountains up here, because that I can tell you, it's nothing but humidity, 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 humidity. Yeah. yeah it's terrible. It, is a, it literally is a rainforest here. So, I mean, it's raining today, the last time I checked, you know, and it and uh, and it will all throughout the spring up until around the end of May. But yeah, no, no way, I wasn't, I wasn't about ready to just go out there and say, hey, how y'all doing? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a percussion band? Do you want some uh, some assistance? <laughs> <laughs> right. Honestly, though, I mean, not to poke fun at all. I just that's a terrifying encounter, and I I know that you've been you know, kind of saying, Hey, I, when I'm ready, I'll come on and, and talk about it. And I just want to say thank you so much for doing that. And, but before I move on, Adam, do you have any more questions for John pertaining to that story? No, I think I'm good. I just, I, I think it's so awesome to, to hear a story again in such detail. I, I think yeah. it's just fantastic and, and incredibly scary. So thanks for that yes, image it as it's like, you know, nine thirty <laughs> night now, and I'll be going to bed here in a little while. That's wonderful. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> If I was anywhere around you guys, I or well, not you, John, but Adam, I'd I, it would be nice just to tap on some things just around you, you know, while you're trying <laughs> yeah. to sleep. I think. Yeah, it'd be super awesome. Thank you. It'd be great. <laughs> just because we're friends, you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. Now, moving along, I I know that we were talking about regional encounter stories. You know, John's in the Carolinas. Adam, you're in Tennessee. Um, Adam, did you want to go ahead and share the one that, that you found interesting? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, it's kind of weird because the, the encounter I found is actually, it's maybe 70 miles west of me here. So I'm in, in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area, so southeastern Tennessee. Um, and so there's a, uh, there was a, a sighting encounter case, whatever you want to call it, that I stumbled on. And it is uh, called the, the Flintville Monster. Um, and I, and I found this one super interesting just because, um, I think most of us probably have listened to, um, well, I know you have Shannon and I'm sure everyone has Sasquatch and Seth Breedlove and all those guys doing uh, mm-hmm. the whole Minerva monster thing. And I, the thing that I found most fascinating about that, I guess, is the fact that it wasn't a single encounter, but kind of a, an ongoing, um, you know, in Minerva, it was just a, a single family. Um, but, uh, here, the, the Flintville case is similar. So I found the newspaper article uh, actually from the Augusta, Augusta, Augusta uh, Georgia Chronicle. And uh-huh. I will – let me read that for you really quick. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, it says, there's a Bigfoot attacking cars and trying to snatch little children in the Tennessee foothills. Exactly what the Flintville monster is or where it came from remains a mystery. But more than two decades of sightings and terrifying encounters have left many people convinced that the creature is not only real, but dangerous as well. More than two decades of sightings and terrifying encounters with a massive hairy monster have left the folks of Flintville, Tennessee, about 70 miles west of Chattanooga, convinced that the creature is not only real, but dangerous. Uh, and then it goes into some, some quotes from some local townspeople. Um, so that thing's so big it could easily hurt somebody, uh, said a local farmer. Who knows how many head of our livestock have gone missing because of it. Um, says, so far, no one has been hurt by the Flintville monster, which often leaves behind 16-inch footprints and a foul, skunk-like odor. Um, but there are those who claim to have had close calls. 
Uh, one man said a seven-foot-tall hairy monster chased him through the woods, howling and screeching at him like an ape. A woman said she hid on the floorboard when a similar creature attacked her car. And this particular Sasquatch or whatever it is uh, appears to really like to beat people's cars up, which is great. Um, on at least one occasion, a child was nearly kidnapped by a thing with long, hairy arms. Uh, so all of this started in 1976. Um, it says when a woman told police that a giant hairy monster broke her automobile antenna and then jumped onto the roof of her car and began bouncing up and down. When the woman's story made news, other citizens stepped forth to describe similar encounters. Um, it says uh, several attacks were reported in the early 1980s, including one by a plumber who said his truck's windshield was smashed by the monster, monster and another by a housewife who said that a black hairy creature chased her inside her house and beat on the door, which is terrifying also. Um, let's see. Again, in 1989, a church pastor complained that something had destroyed the windshield and antenna on his car. Uh, and that same week, a group of teens reported a large man-like ape loping across a field at the edge of town. Uh, but with this, probably the scariest story in all of this uh, is a mother who related her story as, uh, as on April 26, 1976. Uh, this lady's four-year-old son was out playing in his yard and his mom heard him scream from in the house. She ran outside, and uh, immediately she smelled like a really nasty odor, and it, she described it as a uh, as the smell of a skunk or dead rats. Uh, then she said she saw a huge ape-like figure bounding across the yard yard, yard toward her house, um, which is just just frightening. Um, seven or eight feet tall, uh, was covered in hair. That it reached out towards the little boy and came with a few inches of him. She was mm. kind of racing at the creature at the same time the creature was racing at her son and snatched the son up and ran inside. Um, she kind of, once she collected herself, she looked back outside and kind of saw the creature going back out into the woods. Um, so she immediately called the police. Police came and investigated, and they couldn't really find anything, but it's a, uh, they investigated all night. And during the night, though, they heard several howls and screams in their general direction of something that they didn't recognize. Um, they also had rocks thrown at them, which I thought was was really interesting as well. A lot of mm -hmm. a lot of things in this particular encounter um, are very uh, stereotypical or prototypical um, Sasquatch encounters: screams and the the smell and uh, rocks being thrown and things like that. So anyway, these encounters in Flintville um, happened. I think the last encounter I believe it says was in uh, nineteen let's see nineteen ninety three maybe. Uh, so it was a long time that people were seeing this particular creature, and I actually am going to Flintville, I think, here in about two weeks. Um, so I'm really excited just, just to go see. It's like uh, here in southeastern Tennessee, we don't have a, a lot of um, Bigfoot sightings, mm -hmm. or credible Bigfoot sightings, I should say. There are a lot of people kind of in the mountains that um, <laughs> drink things that are illegal now and probably proclaim to see <laughs> such creatures, and it's not necessarily them. Um uh, and I'm sure John has experience with those, mm -hmm. those individuals as well. Um, but there are not a whole lot of credible sightings around here that I, that I would think and probably most people would consider credible. But that one's close enough that I think uh, it would be fun to go check out. So I'm going to head out that way here in a couple of weeks. But that was the closest one to, to home here. Adam, you know what it reminds me of is, and Lyle Blackburn has written a book on this, is the the Lizard Man, the Bishopville Lizard Man, which yeah, I think yeah, is sure. an, an unidentified, you know, Bigfoot coming out of the swamp and he's all wet and slimy so they call him the lizard man well the lizard man really disliked vehicles too and he would tear up cars and right, you know, that, yeah, that, yeah. it just brought that to mind so that that was a cool story that you brought up yeah you know I think it was it is funny I've lived here 
almost my entire life in different parts of Tennessee and had never mm-hmm. heard that, but apparently it was on a, a TV show a while back and things like that. So I thought it was cool. And just the fact that it was not a single encounter, I think is really interesting to know that right. that was kind of a, a habitual type thing that was happening over a period of time. And everyone from a policeman to pastors of churches to kids and just mm-hmm. kind of lay people all saw it. I thought that was super interesting. Much like the Minerva monster, because they also had a, I think it was a sheriff involved in that story, right? right? Yeah. So, yeah. and he was one of the key, key figures in that. So, very sure. cool. Uh, John, how about you? Well, I was going to say Adam's story that he he recounted. Um, uh-huh. I had I had not heard of it until I was looking at a book called Mountain Mysteries uh, by Over Mountain Press, and the guy. Uh, covered that story, and that was the first time that I had heard that particular Bigfoot encounter, and I did not remember it until Adam brought it up this week when we were right. talking, and I, I was like, ah, oh, that's a perfect one. That is an absolutely perfect one. Um, now, I was going to bring up one that we had that was close to here, and it's just, it's a classic one. If you go up online, you can look it up. It's called The Story of... Uh, Bojum and uh, and Annie and uh, you, you literally pronounce that Bojum, but the it, it, it kind of reads like Bojum, but it's B O O J U M, and it was about a uh, Bigfoot-like creature that appeared near the Eagles Nest Hotel up here in the mountains and just right outside of Waynesville, and the guests would actually start to uh, see the creature from time to time, but it had a strange habit. What it would do was it would go through the mountains and it would collect uh, rubies. Um, Adam, you know about this, right? That you can find mm-hmm. the rubies and stuff in the streams and stuff like that. Right. And so apparently it would hoard rubies and emeralds and it would bring them back to its cave and it would hide them in the mountains. And the story is actually about this Bigfoot-style creature uh, uh, falling in love with a particular woman. And from what I understand, that the, the way that the storytellers tell it, the creatures would, would sit at the side of this creek near Eagle's Nest, Nest Mountain and when the women would go and they would bathe from this particular uh, hotel or stop in the woods, they would look up and they would see this hairy-like creature watch them. And uh, one particular girl ended up, as American women normally do, ended up falling in love with this thing and um, <laughs> and going out and living, living in the mountains with this critter. And eventually, from the way that the story winds down, she she they have apparently they have children, but at that point the uh, the critter starts to, or the creature starts to, to to get more greedy, and the only one wants to spend more time hunting emeralds and gems, and they end up breaking up or something like that, and and, and the faded mountain romance ends. Is that pretty oh, much the, what happens? The, the greed takes over. It's terrible. <laughs> That's how I lost my bigfoot lover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they always choose those darn mountain gems first. That's so wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that would be a, a good one to bring up. But yeah, it's uh, Bojum, and they cool call story. it Houdini. Yeah, yeah, that's a really yeah, that's a really cool story. Yeah, well, it makes you wonder about the caves. You know, that's always conjecture when you talk about Bigfoot, especially in the winter time. Where do they go? You know, how right. do they go underground? Do they go into caves? And I, I like hearing those old stories because it kind of it, it makes you you think about those theories that you might have again. Yeah, I I think the other tie-in to like the not not necessarily just 411, but the other stories we've heard from the West Coast with the 
with the Shoshone Indians. I forget what the name of the tribe is in the south there in the west, but um, especially heading out there this summer into Seattle. So I want to spend some time checking this stuff out. But they would sweep into the sites and they would collect the, the women and the, and the children and eat the children, apparently, whatever, with the women. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I found it kind of odd to find an Appalachian story that was very similar about a, a hairy uh, creature watching women as they bathe. I yeah. I was like, wow. You know, well, it, it completely does, and it it's very valid to the I mean to the old Native American stories we hear because that's a lot of times all they talked about was you know they they do what they do with the women and they steal and eat the children. That was their mo to a lot of tribes. <laughs> exactly. Just kind of like eat the eat the kid. I, I'm kind of staring into the chat room at the same time, which is very interesting to do. To do. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in chat. Yeah, it's very distracting sometimes. I didn't well, log in the chat until later. Uh, yeah, so sometimes it distracts a little too much, but we appreciate everybody being in there. That's for sure. Well, I I am so thankful that you guys came on with me tonight. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much again for for having us on. Absolutely. And John, thank you for sharing your encounters. I know that, you know, it's something I wasn't ever like bugging you about, but I just said, hey, when you're ready, you know, of course you can. I would love to have you chat with me about it. And I I surely appreciate you doing that. You're welcome. I, 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 even though it took a couple months, I'm glad we got a chance to do it. So you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you guys for all your work online, too. You're welcome. For sure. All right. Well, I'm sure I will talk to you guys soon. Thanks again. All right. Happy night, Shannon. All right. Bye-bye. Well, guys, I just, before I I sign off, I do have another announcement to make besides the team uh, going out on a little uh, outing together. And it's something we've been discussing doing for a while. And that is adding another member to the team. And more specifically, it will involve show notes, at least right off the bat. So starting next week, I will have a more permanent co-host. Some of you already know him from his Bigfoot Ground Zero podcast, my friend, David Hallett. So I am very much looking forward to that. And we have some great content in the works. And as always, thank you all for your support on SasquatchChronicles.com. And I hope you all have a fantastic week.